Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. Let's talk about tractors and harvesters today and all things new farm machinery. Is this a better year for sales than last year? Is it worse? How is the government money for infrastructure hitting the overall machinery market? And what about a next generation of farm machinery? My guest is a longtime friend, even though he is still young, Kurt Blades, Senior Vice President, Industry Sectors and Product Leadership, if that's not a mouthful, at the Association of Equipment Manufacturers based in West Allis, Wisconsin. So that's just outside Milwaukee. Kurt, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Ken. It is just a pleasure to talk with you today. As you said, longtime friends. We've we've been working together for going on 30 years now. Isn't that crazy? I can't believe that. We go back to Machinery Link. I first knew yeah. you when you were with Machinery Link, which was a radical concept at the time of leasing farm machinery. Yeah, you know, it's funny, and I think we might even hit on this today, a radical concept at the time. And yet, when we talk about the same trends in equipment today, that model is still considered somewhat radical, but a whole lot more real today than it was, you know, 25 years ago when we launched Machinery Link. Well, they gave you some room to move, and you showed up one time on AgriShop with us as, a, <laughs> I think, the only only advertiser we ever had on AgriShop other than Death to America Home Computers and the Dead Serious Funeral Home, you were the only real advertiser that we had. And that was such a fun Saturday morning show that I did for years. And then Gene Miller turned it into a real radio program and did it until just recently. That was a that was a fun, a fun memory. And I think, uh, you know, when I moved on from uh, from Machinery Link into media sales, I think you and I ran into each other. You always reminded me like that is the that is the best value add I've ever offered any any advertising customer uh, is to let them go on air with me and co-host. And I'll tell you what, I love that. Thanks for thanks for thanks for reminding me of that fun experience of a number of years ago. Yeah. Now, were you with Meredith for a period of time? I was with Meredith at uh, uh, with uh, successful farming in Meredith Agrimedia for uh, oh, about fifteen years, actually. How long have you now been with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, Kurt? So I, I just celebrated my fifth anniversary with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, and I'll tell you what, what a pretty crazy time to be working in the machinery business, the off-road equipment business, because the changes that have been happening in the last five years and the changes that are coming in the next 20 years are truly transformational. It's a fun time to be doing what I'm doing. Well, now the nuts and bolts is you put out a lot of information of industry trends, but I'd love to talk to you further than that, but let's begin with some of those. How are sales of farm machinery this year doing compared to recent years? Well, every, every month uh, for the last, you know, 30 years, the Association of Equipment Manufacturers publishes the tractor and combine report. And uh, we break out what the sales are month to month by comparison and year to date by comparison by by, by classes. We break them into f- under 40 horsepower, 40 to 100, and over 100. And then we do articulated four-wheel drives and combines. And so we've got a really cool perspective of what tractor sales look like. And as you know, 
tractor sales tend to almost one-to-one match corn prices. I mean, almost one-to-one if you go past those 30 years until three years ago. And the pandemic changed everything. Pandemic changed everything in terms of what we could predict, changed everything in terms of what those trends would look like. It also changed the 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 the, the mixture of of what equipment was sold to farm versus non-farm. Well, if you were to go back on this statement about the one-to-one match, I take it when farm prices are high, farmers buy paint, as they say. Farmers buy tractors to keep from paying taxes. And when farm prices are low, they use what they have. That is a pretty true statement. What happened? Well, what well, what happened is during the during the pandemic, and you kind of you know, but think think back to March 2020, and the world the world came to an end. The world the world came to a pause, and that happened right at the beginning of planting season. Mm-hmm. And so we have, uh, I mean, there's a blip on the on the sales radar where there was like two weeks where nothing sold, nothing transacted. And we've kind of been dealing with that wrinkle for a long time. The other thing that happened as a result of that, when the when the world shuts down, you got folks that have got a lot of disposable income, non-farm folks that have a lot of disposable income in an acreage that didn't go to Europe didn't go to wherever it was they were going to be on a vacation. They decided to invest in their property or invest in things to do with their home. And they bought small tractors, a lot of small tractors. From 2020 up, really up until the beginning of this year, we were seeing record high growth, 20, 30% year over year, month over month growth in sales of small tractors. And, um, that changed the, that changed the dynamics that changed you know everything in terms of the reportings that we look at what's interesting is that the ag equipment market specifically those row crop tractors 100 plus horsepower is how we would track them obviously we know they go a lot bigger but that's the distinction that we make public those numbers were steady because we've been in a replacement market for that um, you know for row crop tractors for the last 10 years but then what started to happen is that number started to rapidly increase Largely driven by the commodity market because commodity, commodity market came in came in pretty strong, but it just sort of it sort of started to grow rapidly, uh, somewhat independently, and we started to see, you know, row crop tractors sell at rates we were not expecting uh, at the end of 2020, and those really continued all the way to uh, through 2021. Now, as we look at 2022. We still see the demand is very, very high, but we got this new challenge that is standing in the way of us being able to, to satisfy that demand. And that's all those supply chain issues. And that there is, the issue is supply, isn't it? The issue is supply. The demand is there, but the supply is, is a challenge. And it's, you know, people ask, what's the, you know, how do you solve the supply chain challenges? Well, there's no, there's no silver bullet. It's transportation, it's labor, it's steel, it's, you know, uh, wire harnesses out of Ukraine, it's belts out of, you know, South, uh, South Carolina, who knows, it's, it's, it's not one thing, it's everything. People say, well, we're about 80% through the supply chain challenge, you got to have 100% of the parts to, to ship a tractor. So that's, that's sort of weighing on the, uh, on the market just a little bit. So in the month of July, Overall, tractor sales were down 21% for the year, but they were, that is comparing against 21, which they were so high in 21. So I think you kind of have to take that one with a little bit of grain of salt. 
But row crop tractors, ag tractors, were actually up 20% for the month of July. So that's where I talk about this sort of what we were used to and being able to predict things. Very different now because you know, the pandemic changed everything. The pandemic changed the supply chain. Kurt, as you look at um, the overall market, do you also pick up the industrial side, meaning the, these same companies producing for uh, industrial use, and if you do, has that been going up because of the amount of government money that's now been appropriated for infrastructure? Well, about so, so we we track articulated four wheel drive tractors, and as you know, articulated four wheel drive tractors are big, big tractors. That's a that's a, also a pretty expensive piece of equipment. You got to be a pretty sizable farm to be able to purchase one of those. There's not a lot of them purchased. But an interesting story we sort of recognize is those, those have actually held quite well over the last year. Some manufacturers claim maybe as high as 20% of their articulated four-wheel drive tractor market goes to construction or goes to that industrial market. So although we count it as an ag, it is certainly has benefited from the infrastructure package and the promise of an, an infrastructure package. Um, you know, roads and bridges, you know, you, you got to have tractors, you got to have dozers, you got to have all those things. But a lot of there's a whole lot of uh, four wheel drive tractors that are that are alongside the road as well, building those roads and bridges. You mentioned the uh, supply chain. Um, are those companies regretting diversifying it and making it worldwide or are they just going to power on through this? Or are they going to bring it home? Well, that's a that's a. That's an interesting and complicated question. You, you can't really answer it with a yes or a no, uh, because there is no question we are in a global market, and that is by far the most efficient way to produce anything, whether it's tractors or pinball machines. Uh, and, and that ship sailed 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when, when we were you know, talking about steel, four years ago with, with, uh, when the tariffs were on China and, and, uh, I would have, have, uh, you know, regulators and politicians come and say, well, why don't you buy that steel, you know, here in the United States? And the answer is not that simple. It's like, yeah, we, we would love, I would love nothing more than to buy the steel from my neighbor, but those smelters left 40 years ago, uh, for environmental regulations or cost or whatever it is. So the global market is is very real. And because agriculture operates on such thin margins, we got to keep the cost down. And so you have to find the, the least cost way to do that. Uh, having said that, I think this whole growing nationalism that's happening around the world is really causing people to rethink their their supply chains. And uh, I wouldn't say abandoning global uh, by any stretch, but taking a look at maybe something that's maybe a little bit more regional or even having more diversification in your terms of your suppliers. If you're 100 percent dependent on, you know, one supplier for your belts and hoses and that company goes down for whatever reason, uh, you're, you're, you're at risk. So I think we're finding a lot of people just just taking a critical look at their entire supply chain. There certainly is a push to, to reshore, and that makes sense in a lot of cases. And you talk about government money. The CHIPS Act um, is providing some real incentives to bring microchips back to the United States. That's a, that's a good thing um, when it makes sense. 
but in some cases, you know, that that either that expertise or that efficiency has left us. And it's going to take a while for us to build that expertise back up here in the United States if we're or or even in the, you know, the NAFTA region, if that's, in fact, what we're going to do. Because so you can't turn on a factory overnight. You can't build that expertise overnight. I would think if you ask a farmer, you know, what do you want in machinery uh, for your farm? Uh, one of the things that would be near the top of the list is economical. I want it cheap. Mm-hmm. I want it as cheap as it possibly can be. And American industry really is to blame or credit for diversifying to where that you got an acceptable uh, standard of uh, quality at the cheapest possible price, but it had to be somewhere else in the world in many cases. Then we had the regulatory climate here that made it to where that if you manufactured in the United States, it was a lot harder for you to do so and more expensive than if you manufactured somewhere else. But now, Kurt, it seems to me like we've reached another side, and that is the fear of weaponization of the supply chain, meaning that a country that doesn't like us or hates us or wants to seal our technology is where we make our product. That's very real. I mean, it's it's very real. And, uh, you you know, you I, I can't say it better. I mean, it's it's as simple as, you know, things were offshored for any number of reasons, economic, regulatory. You can go through 50 different reasons and they're all absolutely valid. Uh, but the but the new factor for bringing things back into line is a little bit more complicated, and uh, you know there's some there's some there's some black swans that we always talk about you know in economics classes uh, that hey this will never happen. Well, guess what? It happened. You know we, we'll never see a pandemic in our lifetime. Well, guess what we did? We would never you know shut down. You're from Iowa, Ken, so you'd never shut down the Iowa State Fair. Well, we did. I mean, who would have thought that would have happened in our lifetimes? Twenty, you know, it's 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 the two thousands. Uh, you know, who would have thought that that uh, some of the uh, you know things we've had to deal with with the supply chain we would have to be dealing with in today in our technologically advanced society? Well, well, we are. Uh, you know, who would have thought the the you know the geopolitics that we see happening in uh, in Eastern Europe uh, would be happening? But they're happening in our lifetime. So these black swan events that kind of get referred to are happening, and that's causing us to have to rethink everything. My guest is Kurt Blades. Um, I love your perspective, Kurt, and, and I love the fact that you've basically pulled yourself up by your bootstraps since you first stepped into this industry quite a long time ago. He's Senior Vice President of Industry Sectors and Product Leadership at the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Where are you exactly with your offices? You're in Milwaukee, which is the old center for so much of our heritage lines of farm machinery but where are you guys located well that's a, that's a cool story i'm actually we're actually located in the old alice chalmers factory in west alice wisconsin which is just just west of downtown milwaukee a little little uh, you know at the time was an industrial um, uh, suburb now is you know a bunch of corporate offices but we are actually in the uh, in the uh, original foundry for wheels for Alice hmm. Chalmers, and this this particular building was making um, uh, large large uh, uh, equipment wheels, large construction wheels when Alice was in was in that business. But it's pretty cool because you talk about that history of manufacturing in Wisconsin; it's still very much there. I mean, it's you know you've got some some storied brands are still right down the road with with uh, with cases we can talk about, but also in the construction side with. 
uh, with you know Komatsu uh, opening up a brand new brand new factory right there in town, and uh, all all that manufacturing hub is still very much you know upper Midwest, and that's an appropriate place for AEM to be located. I, I we represent five sectors: ag, construction, forestry, mining, and utility. Been around for 125 years. But the interesting thing is that all of these uh, businesses that are known as construction companies today, almost all of them got their start in agriculture. So you know, if your listeners being mostly uh, mostly of an agrarian nature like myself, uh, that's kind of a cool heritage to 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 be able to to talk to people about. So do you have a 50-foot ceiling in your office? <laughs> we, well, we have a 30-foot ceiling in our office. We're in a loft, but there's a, the original uh, lobby that I walked through is absolutely a 50-foot building with uh, or 50-foot ceiling with those uh, floor-to-ceiling doors that are, that are pretty cool. They've all been, they've all been uh, you know, sealed up, but the, the whole building is a collage of, of old factory photos and, and seeing things, you know, because that factory was there for you know, 50 years. And through some some pretty interesting times, including the war when it was converted over to military production, we got all those photos in that building. It's a it's a cool piece of heritage to to walk through every day. Wow, let me ask you something about the future. Uh, several years ago, uh, New Holland, as I recall, came out with a hydrogen tractor, and uh, the people that got to see it said it was weird because it didn't make any noise except the the clinking of the machine as it went through the crop or the soil. Are you seeing within your companies any moves toward electrical or hydrogen powered vehicles? Well, the the short answer is yes. The long answer is it depends. Um, I mean, some of these decisions to look at alternative power are driven by you know, as you talk about economics, we've got to find the thing that makes the most sense uh, to, to power equipment. Uh, it takes, I heard the stat the other day, five and a half gallons of diesel fuel for every row crop. That makes a lot of sense when diesel is a buck a gallon. But when diesel is hovering six, seven bucks a gallon, all of a sudden some of those alternative fuels that we would call alternative fuels begin to make a whole lot more sense, whether it's hydrogen uh, or electric, or methane, or go through the list. Uh, so there's an economic benefit, and then clearly, it's no secret there is a uh, a lot of pressure to uh, to address emissions. The industry came together to create tier four engines, and you know when you look at what they what they have done to uh, to reduce emissions and frankly increase the efficiency, it's pretty remarkable. So what's next? Is it tier five, like, you know, it's being talked about in Europe or in China? Is it uh, a different power? I think all things are on the table. One of the things that we can come across very strongly with AEM is uh, if anyone would listen, whether it's Carvel of California or the EPA, is say, please do not prescribe a technology to address clean air. Let us innovate our way to a particular goal, because in some cases that hydrogen tractor that New Holland put forward, maybe a little bit ahead of its time, but there's other hydrogen tractors that are being proposed today uh, that look really good and show a ton of promise. But there are some inherent challenges with hydrogen 
that may not work for every application, just like electric may not work for every application and diesel may not work for every application. One of the challenges I've heard is that moving away from diesel engines, which the EPA very much wants us to cut down the particulate coming out of that type of engine, is going to be very difficult because of the capabilities of diesel and the knowledge of it of the entire industrial sector that it'll be harder to give up than a gasoline engine. Is that close to true? I think there's a little bit of truth there. Um, But the other way I would say, I would probably approach it from a slightly different angle and saying that diesel is a beautiful fuel. I mean, and, and diesel engines are incredibly efficient and, and when built correctly and when operating at an idle speed, they're also really, really, they just sip diesel fuel and they just, they just purr. I mean, if you go past a, you know, a, a locomotive is, is not a diesel locomotive. It's an electric locomotive with a diesel generator. And you kind of see how those are going with, with, you know, lower idle and really producing a ton of power with a low idle diesel. That's a good thing. The biggest emission happens when you start it or you kill it. Uh, so there's a lot of room, a lot of way for us to go on diesel. Plus that constant power is, is something that is not quite matched with anything else just yet. So diesels, diesel holds a lot of promise. You know, again, talk about hydrogen, talk about electrical. They're both also hold a lot of promise. I mean, electrical, uh, you can't beat the torque of electrical. I mean, it just it is you sit next to Tesla at a, at a red light and you see what happens. There's just there's no comparison. But we don't need torque in farming. We need sustained power. And a battery can only last so long. And so in either the technology's got to improve or the way we farm have got to change in order for battery to be a really viable solution for off-road. Hydrogen, another one. It's, it's, it's quite interesting. But it, you, know, you can't have that instant on that we might be looking for with, uh, with diesel power uh, because of the warm-up times. Well, that's, we can, we can te- find a way to make that work technologically and probably deal with it. But there are going to be some inherent challenges that, uh, that come with that. So I think what we have to take a look at with the whole thing is a, balance, uh, a balanced approach. But as it relates to diesel, as you said, really, uh, I, I believe that there's a long, long way that diesel can continue to go. And I certainly hope that the regulators allow diesel to live up to its full potential uh, and l- let us innovate some of the challenges that they're putting from us, front of us in terms of less emission and more power. A few years ago, Kurt, I was at an event where they were rolling out, I think it was a tier three uh, mm-hmm. engine. And uh, I, I asked one of the engineers, I said, well, what's, what's it going to be like if, if they make you move to a tier four engine? He said, well, I believe we're going to get to the point to where that the exhaust off these engines will be piped directly into hospitals and it'll be purer and cleaner than oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> we're not far from that today, Ken. I mean, the, uh, the tier, four, tier four final that we're dealing with today in many cases, uh, delivers air that's more pure, breathes out air purer than it breathes in from a particulate matter standpoint. Uh, and that's just, that's real. Uh, we got a little bit of ways to do with some of the greenhouse gases, but, but that's very real. And the, the discussions that we're hearing around, you know, the, the new standard for, uh, for, for Europe or for China, uh, they absolutely go there. So we're not very far from that. And it's pretty, pretty cool. It's pretty, pretty neat to be a part of those conversations where 
you know, what, what seems like an offhand flippant comment is real. Well, agriculture is going to be a major factor in what I'll call carbon capture in the yeah. future. And the carbon capture side may be where farmers make their money uh, in the years ahead. Uh, I don't know exa- exactly how to define what it will be. It'll be cropping systems, but it also may be uh, the machinery that they run and the way that they handle agricultural production. Um, I, it's got to be in the crosshairs of the companies that you represent on trying to figure out how they will be a part of that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the the the, the reality is you can't really car- you re- can't really capture carbon without green plants, or by far that's the most efficient way to capture carbon. Well, you can't really have a lot of green plants without good farming. I'll tell you, Kent, I am I am proud of our industry how much in the last four years the ag industry has pivoted uh, quickly to stop being defensive about uh, environment and recognize that we are part of the solution in a very positive way. And, you know, that, that, that change in dialogue, change in attitude among farmers, among farm organizations, among ag business in general, has made such a tremendous difference in conversations that we have with EPA uh, and with other environmental groups that, that, that at one time you could have thought were setting out to do us some harm. So I'm really proud of our industry for for making that change because it's really exciting. And we think about, um, you know, what what tractors can do today with being 20 percent more efficient because they're tier four, because they're tier five engine. That's less diesel fuel. Obviously, there's an economic benefit, but there's a pretty good environmental benefit there as well. When you think about applying precision agriculture to an acre and recognizing that you're getting, you know, just the, the simple rea- reality of, of applying less active ingredient. It's really neat to see what that does from a from a from an environmental impact. What that means overall with with uh, you know greenhouse gases, but also just you know water quality and water runoff. So those are really interesting things that we've got on our side. Um, in answer to the questions like the carbon economy, a farmer's going to make money at that, and I I think it, the verdict's still out. Uh, I, I, I certainly hope that as the carbon market evolves, that there is an active place for farmers to participate. I believe there will be, but there's so much money being poured into it and so much attention being poured into it. I do have a little skepticism uh, about you know how much of that is actually going to farmers. I certainly hope a lot of it is. I know farm members have anything to do with it. Uh, the work, the work that they're doing to get involved with carbon capture has got the farmer front and center because we recognize that you can't, you know, you, you can't do the work without the person who's actually doing the work getting most of the incentive. Kurt Blades, I love your perspective and your uh, aim for the future and uh, the fact that you continue to publicly put out information about the ag equipment industry to show what the trends are, and people can pick these up through news releases. Uh, do you have a website for your organization where people can uh, tune in? Absolutely, aem.org. That's aem.org. And if you want to see some of our research papers, like uh, a new one on the uh, the future of food production, and one a couple of years ago we did on the environmental benefits of precision agriculture, and one that's coming out here later on in 2022, uh, the environmental benefits of modern dairy. 
uh, go to aem.org slash insights, and you'll be able to download copies of those research papers and fascinating reads. And I'll tell you what, don't be afraid to reach out to me because I love having talk, conversations about, uh, about the future and about technology. Wonderful. Well, Kurt, from Machinery Link and <laughs> AgriShop to today, <laughs> it's a joy to know you, and I hope to keep uh, up with your progress and pursuits in the future. I do, too. I hope you woke up grumpy this morning. <laughs> no, I let her sleep. <laughs> let her sleep. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.